and a bit of context about the theatre and performance network. Uh, we're really grateful to the Oxford Centre of Humanities uh, Torch for supporting this event. The theatre and performance network provides a forum to bring academics working on drama and theatre together, and at the same time to connect them with theatre professionals both in Oxfordshire and beyond. Uh, Torch seeks to promote interdisciplinary research, which is at the heart of our symposium today. And I'll hand over to Alex to introduce our keynote speaker and get started. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Dushka Ranasavich is Reader of Contemporary Theatre and Performance at the Royal, School of, uh, Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. She is the author of the award winning Theatre Making Interplay Between Text and Performance in the 21st Century from 2013, editor of the Contemporary Ensemble 2013, and Theatre Criticism Changing Landscape from 2016. Dushka's paper is entitled The Heterarchical Director, a Model of Authorship for the 21st Century. And there'll be time for questions at the end. Thank you. So, um, thank you very much uh, for the introduction and thank you for inviting me to speak here today. I understand I have to speak into, the, into this, into the microphone. Uh, I, I will depart from... Uh, the convention uh, a little bit, and I will try and speak rather than read a paper. Um, I have written it. <laughs> it will be. Uh, it is a chapter in a new book on directors' theatre. Uh, but um, in the spirit of uh, the main subject of the paper, which is improvisation, it feels appropriate to um, actually improvise my way through this um, PowerPoint presentation. Um, I have been um, asked to keep to 45 minutes, so um, I, I hope that that will help me also keep to the time. Um, so, um, as I mentioned already, um, the heterarchical director is um, it's, it's not a massive piece of research that I'm embarking on, but it is a kind of um, a, a point where I've arrived uh, with some of the research I have um, conducted so far, uh, specifically the work I've done on ensemble theatre and Theatre Making, uh, which is a study of authorship in contemporary theatre. Um, um, I've arrived at the point where I'm looking at ways of understanding theatre authorship through the history of collaboration um, and um, with an emphasis on performativity um, and departing from, from the notion of sort of literary uh, authorship, uh, authorship being a literary activity per se. Um, so... Um, for those of you who are familiar with this work, The Director's, the director's Theatre, uh, which was a book that was published in 1988, um, and it's a collection of, of essays on a number of um, theatre directors who were, uh, in 1988, considered to be um, the epitome of what a, a theatre director is. Um, this was a book that was co-authored by uh, David Bradby and David Williams, and um, it, uh, it, it was, um, yes, it, it's a series of essays that um, in a way canonizes a certain number of directors from the period. From this point of view, we would probably consider these directors to be second generation, um, coming after people like um, Stanislavski, um, Reinhardt and, and so on. Um, so um, this year was supposed to be the 30th anniversary of this book 
um, it, it is a 30th anniversary of this book. And as part of that, uh, there will be a new edition of the Director's Theatre um, volume with four new essays uh, commissioned to expand the range already represented um, by, the, by the essays uh, in here. Um, and so one of the essays um, that was commissioned from me specifically um, with the idea of uh, speaking or writing about director in um, the ensemble has resulted in this paper which I have called the heterarchical director. Uh, the notion of heterarchy has emerged as a result of thinking about a particular uh, case study, which I will speak about today. So just to outline um, very quickly um, what the paper will, what the basic structure of the paper will be, I will speak, I will offer a brief overview of some ideas around um, directorial authorship since 1988, um, the publication of that book. Uh, I will do that by looking at a number of um, texts um, in performance studies that have commented on the uh, evolving functions of uh, uh, theatre director uh, since uh, then. Um, it will also revisit and reconsider the significance of improvisation as an organizing system rather than an auxiliary uh, rehearsal technique. So um, for those of us um, uh, familiar with uh, improvisation in theater, we, we often think about theater, uh, uh, improvisation in theater as either being um, sort of a set of games that are played in order to kind of uh, you know, bring uh, the, the idea of theatre closer to um, our understanding of how, th how it works. Um, or we think about it in this Stanislavskian tradition of improvisation being a rehearsal technique for mining the text and so on. Uh, in the paper today, I will look at how improvisation can become um, kind of a model for systemic leadership. Um, so I will speak about it in more detail later. Um, I will specifically explore the case study of um, Improbable Theatre's production of Lost Without Words, which was uh, staged at the National Theatre in March 2017. And um, this will bring me to considering the notion of leadership specifically in theatre within some of the contemporary paradigms that um, are kind of moving away from the ego leadership model to eco-leadership model. This is not necessarily about applying eco-criticism to the idea of uh, theater. It is more uh, specifically thinking about leadership in, in, in this um, uh, sort of shifting way. And um, it proposes ultimately the idea of the hierarchical director as a model for the 21st century. Um, it's, it's not, uh, this sounds very ambitious and kind of you know, uh, it, it is not, it's not, um, it's not uh, aiming to change things or propose a manifesto. It is simply just um, trying to um, deduce a model of working from, um, from thinking about some particular examples in, in this context. Um, as, as such, it's also uh, potentially um, uh, overindulging in idealism of, of, of some kind. I'm sure there will be lots of uh, uh, questions and, and, and ways of critiquing this way of thinking about um, making theatre, uh, but um, uh, I, I think it's just, uh, I'm just 
so taking this opportunity to kind of um, propose a, an idea that may or may not uh, be pragmatically applicable. So in terms of um, directorial functions that specifically Bradby and Williams um, offer or, or elicit from their examples in the introduction to their volume, they speak about um, scenic writing um, as, a, as a means of pursuing authority in theatre. This is Bradby, who is a specialist in French theatre, applying um, the uh, auteur theory from film to uh, the processes of making in theatre. And um, by looking at those examples I listed at the, at the beginning, and actually for the benefit of the recording, I might just um, uh, remind uh, us that these examples include uh, Roger Planchon, um, uh, Joan Littlewood, um, Robert Wilson, Jerzy Grotowski, Peter Brook, uh, Peter Stein. Um, Bradley Williams um, elicit a set of directorial functions ranging from directorate curator, directorate privileged spectator, prophet, teacher and founder of schools, revolutionary agitator working for a change in the whole society, priest and organizer of sacred mysteries, director as guru, and very often director as a leader of uh, an ensemble. Um, a lot of the directors listed um, in that book are uh, associated with ensembles and with the ensemble way of working, albeit in this uh, tradition of a director as a guru, that they have um, created ensembles as a means of promoting a particular way of working. Since then, um, probably one of the most interesting uh, titles in, in, in theatre studies was Simon Shepard's book from 2012 called Direction, in which Simon Shepard traces the reasons uh, or, or for absence of directorial training in the British context um, and uh, considers a number of new functions uh, that have emerged since um, 1988 um, and possibly even six, since 1968 um, that maybe Bradby and Williams' book didn't necessarily acknowledge. So Shepard gives us, um, well, the notion that by 1989 directing became a kind of a dirty word as a result of 1968 and the changing notions of authority from then on. Um, so the, the new function, functions emerging um, in this more recent period include the notion of director as facilitator, director as conductor, uh, and uh, Robert Lepage is given as an example of both of those um, uh, functions. Uh, then uh, director as impresario or creative producer, director as agent in dispersed directing. Um, an example of this is uh, Shant, uh, which is a collective that um, kind of works with a, a number of, with a kind of almost like an ensemble of, of leaders. We have a director as a custodian of an atmosphere or a manager of the process of imagination as exemplified by Chris Good, um, and a, di a director as an agent in parallel directing. 
Um, and he gives the example of uh, Felix Barrett and Maxim Doyle of Punch Drunk as uh, examples of this model. Uh, I will return to this idea of um, at least the notion of a duo at, at the helm uh, in, a, in a minute. Um, so just to uh, pause a little bit around uh, Shepard's idea of direction versus facilitation, which I found quite, quite interesting. Um, he defines facilitation as establishing a framework within which the actors will engage with the material and have their ideas. And similarly, director as conductor, and variations of this would include workshop leader, community project leader, and teacher. Um, this uh, particular kind of director elicits, reveals, and draws out material which is already in the person. Shepard notes that this sort of directing um, occurs more in the context of applied theatre and community theatre rather than um, in sort of mainstream forms of theatre making. And as such, he um, notes that the, pro the emphasis here is on the process rather than the outcome. Uh, quoting his words, he says, when directing modulates by its interest in facilitation into leading the importance of the finished artwork diminishes. I would like to question the premises behind this assertion. Um, specifically, the idea that manifest authorship of a mise-en-scene has greater value than latent authorship of a working structure. Do we, do we um, acknowledge the director's achievement only through um, what we can see, what we can identify as being the director's creation on the stage? Or should we acknowledge that directorial authority and directorial authorship um, consists in other processes as well? Another question premise here is the, the notion that aesthetic value of an artwork is necessarily commensurate with assertion of individual authority. So going back to this romantic idea of, of authorship, uh, uh, the way in which uh, this is being applied to how we understand um, uh, the director as an author uh, is also worth uh, questioning in my view. And also the director's uh, denunciation of sole authority um, often, um, is often questioned um, as, as, as some sort of a uh, false modesty. Uh, and specifically, the examples of Robert Lepage and Simon McBurney, um, very often in various examples of scholarship, uh, when they claim that they um, are interested, genuinely interested in collaboration as a model of authorship, that they often uh, like to place their own uh, collaborators um, uh, as equally important in this process as, as the director uh, themselves, uh, very often this tends to be critiqued as being um, some sort of false modesty, that the director is not entirely uh, honest when they claim this to be the case. I don't know, I just, I just wonder whether um, if we were to uh, take them for their word, we might uh, begin to open up other ways of thinking about what theatre making might be. In this respect, um, I think it's also useful to just for a moment consider a, a particular chapter by Alex Mermakidis uh, where she um, 
wrote about the example of forced entertainment. And she tried to um, place the company within the different uh, lineages of the director's theater on the one hand and performance of, or, or live art on the other. In this, uh, in this case, she then un understands that director's theater is being characterized by calculated intentionality, individual authorship, artistic virtuosity, and imposition of the directorial vision and authorial agency in the fixing of the performance text. On the other hand, performance and live art tradition are um, characterized by a rejection of hierarchy, adoption of a system of compositional rules, and um, a facilitation of a devote as opposed to a centralized model of authorship. Um, analyzing the way in which forced entertainment works and the way in which uh, Tim Mitchells, as the director of this company, um, emerges as representative of the company, uh, Mermakidis concludes that um, forced entertainment operates a hybrid model of theater making, a pairing of anti-hierarchical group creation with the precision and rigor of an individual vision. I wouldn't question this, but I, I think this is an interesting uh, framework that Mermakidis offers us for considering improvisation, which I will do in a minute. Uh, another text, uh, which, which is actually a um, collection of essays edited by Mermakidis and Jackie Smart, uh, is also interesting here. And this is the book called Devising in Process, in which they analyze uh, a number of uh, companies um, working um, in the sort of 2000s, um, specifically by looking at um, their rehearsal processes. Um, here, um, they also note this notion of um, the uh, contemporary ensemble often being um, led by, the, by a tandem, a core of two leaders at the helm, something that Shepard called the parallel directing, for example. In their book, 50% of the companies um, uh, seem to favor this model of having um, two directors at the helm. Some of the examples that they give are Theater O and Third Angel. And they explain this by saying that the desire, uh, they explain it through a desire on the one hand for group structures that enable collaboration and to some degree resist so directorial authority and on the other, the economic difficulty of continuously sustaining a large group of people in the UK specifically. Um, so that, that's quite an interesting uh, phenomenon just to note in this um, context. Uh, similarly, the, the work that, that's been mentioned already, the Contemporary Ensemble um, collection of interviews that I conducted um, has revealed for me a number of examples of, uh, I, interviewed, um, I interviewed ensemble uh, practitioners who are not necessarily only directors. I, I spoke to writers who have ensembles around them, um, producers, dramaturgs. And in this um, empirical research I conducted, I, I encountered a number of uh, directorless ensembles, um, models of devolved leadership, such as with Chicago-based neo-futurists, or reluctant uh, ensemble leaders, such as Faley McDermott of Improbable Theatre. Um, Faley McDermott and um, Anton Adasinski, a Russian 
uh, theater maker um, who has who is who is famous as the uh, artistic director of a company called Dereva have both spoken because they both um, came into theater as actors have both spoken about not being being interested in directing they often find themselves in directorial uh, positions but actually, as Phelim has said, he is constantly trying to do himself out of the job of the director. So when I was approached to write this um, chapter for this book, um, I was uh, at the time on maternity leave and I, I kind of was looking for a way of getting back into uh, thinking about uh, theater. And just at the time, uh, Improbable was going into rehearsals for this show, Lost Without Words. Um, and I was particularly interested to see um, to actually, you know, engage in, in um, uh, an act of sort of rehearsal ethnography and observe how ensemble is created, um, especially with two directors at the helm. Before I speak a bit more about improbable, I'd like to introduce this notion of heterarchy. I didn't go into rehearsals with the idea of heterarchy, but I think it's a useful idea just to frame what we are talking about today. So heterarchy, um, I encountered it through uh, an essay by Bruno Latour, um, where, he's, where he discusses uh, an artwork by Thomas Saracino called Galaxies Forming Along Filaments, like droplets along the strands of a spider's web. This is an artwork from 2009 that was presented at the 53rd Biennale in Venice. And you can see here one photograph of what this looks like. I will show you another one in a minute. Heterarchy as a term appears in a number of uh, fields of knowledge. Um, in neurophysiology and cybernetics, it cropped up in 1945. It is particularly present in uh, international relations as a way of speaking about globalization. And uh, probably, one text that keeps cropping up when you actually try and research heterarchy is uh, a text by Carl Crumley, who is an archaeology and, uh, archaeologist and anthropologist. And she offers a very useful um, definition of, of heterarchy uh, as uh, the relation of elements to one another when they are unranked or when they possess the potential of being ranked in a number of different ways. The most important thing to say about it is that heterarchy is not an antonym to hierarchy. It does not uh, imply that it is the opposite. So, uh, further, furthermore, Crumley notes that uh, heterarchy is a system by which power is dispersed, shared, or counterpoised, rather than permanently ranked relative to one another. And it's particularly observable within the study of self-organizing systems from snowflakes to human beings, she says, which I quite like. Uh, as such, it, has the stage, it, it sets the stage for renewed collaboration among physical, biological, and social scientists. So pointing towards some kind of in, potential interdisciplinarity. Um, oh, so I mentioned Bruno Latour. Um, and, uh, Bruno Latour speaks about um, Saracino's work as being representative, as a, being a visual representation of heterarchy. 
um, and it, whereby it illustrates Latour's own ideas of network and Peter Sloterdijk's idea, idea of spheres. And in a way, um, this work is sort of a visual representation of networks between spheres, um, which Bruno Latour notes as being a way of registering the or originality of globalization as well. So what is a heterarchical director? Um, I would say that heterarchical director is a director who is interested in the ensemble way of working, a director who still privileges the network, however, a director who is at the same time not necessarily interested in hierarchy, in that conventional sense of the word. Um, so this example of uh, improbable theater, in this picture we can see uh, Lee Simpson and Haley McDermott who are the, the artistic directors of Improbable Theatre. They um, founded a company in 1996, together with Julian Crouch, a designer who has since left the company, and Nick Sweeting, a producer who is still the producer for the company. And admittedly, uh, the, the visual identity of the company's work has probably changed over the years, but this is also a model that, that, uh, that they acknowledge as being important um, in the way in which the company functions, that change is, constant change is part of the way in which the company works. These are some of their significant works. Probably the most significant uh, piece was Shock-Headed Peter um, that they created in the year 2000. It started off in uh, the West Yorkshire Playhouse in Leeds. It then toured around the world via the West End to Broadway. Um, and since then, the company has had, um, and, um, and individual members of the company, i.e. Uh, Simpson and, Mc, uh, and McDermott, have developed their own bodies of work. McDermott has specifically gone on to uh, make opera at the ENO and the Metropolitan Theatre in New York, and on Broadway as well. Uh, uh, Simpson has uh, created other kinds of work and he, he also continues to work as a, an improviser at a comedy store in London, a very fringe venue, which he has done since the 1980s. The two met um, in the 1990s, uh, so, or, uh, sorry, maybe even in the 1980s, but then it took a while before they actually formed the company, and uh, they met um, at uh, an improvisation workshop that was run by uh, Keith Johnston. Or at least that's in the mythology of the, of the company. It's not been verified exactly. Another important aspect of the company's work to note at this point is also their activism that's um, illustrated by the annual devoted and disgruntled uh, events that they convene. Um, these events have um, happened every year since 2002. And in these events, I don't know, are, are, is anyone here familiar with Devoted and Disgruntled? Yes, there are people. So um, these, are, these are events that, uh, it, it's a conferencing event that deploys a particular model of conferencing um, called Open Space. This was a model invented by Harrison Irwin, um, specifically for working in sort of peace-building environments. The idea is that the uh, group of people um, attending the event come uh, together, set the agenda together, and then 
on, a, on an entirely voluntary basis uh, discuss particular topics that um, in the, the individual uh, participants are interested in. So there is no um, sense of structure where uh, the agenda is preset and, and, uh, a, a, and a, a structure is sort of dictated by the conveners. Um, the idea is that the structure emerges um, through a process of self-organization of the group itself. They created this show in 2017 um, called Lost Without Words, which uh, ended up being fir the first fully improvised show at the National Theatre. Um, in this show, they worked with a group of actors who were all in their 70s and 80s. Um, they had started uh, workshopping, you know, just working together with these, these actors, uh, two years previously, and they had several workshops across that period of time, where they were simply um, introducing the actors to their way of working. What's particularly interesting to note about this generation of actors, which was a revelation for me when I went into the rehearsals, was that none of them had really had any training in improvisation, and they hadn't had any experience uh, of working as improvisers. Uh, what's more, there was a certain stigma attached um, to the idea of improvisation coming from the contemporaries of those actors. So in a way, they were taking a risk by um, agreeing to work in this particular way. The, the, the show also in, involved a musician and a, light, a, lighting, and a lighting designer who have worked with Improbable over an ex, uh, extended period of time and have um, and also take on the roles of improvisers in the process of rehearsal and the process of performance. So the musician and the lighting designer don't work from cues, they simply take cues from what is going on on stage. The show was directed by two directors, Faye McDermott and Lee Simpson, and the assistant director, uh, Caroline Williams, had been assigned to the show uh, uh, by the National Theatre, but she had previously worked with the company as well and had chosen to um, uh, be attached to, to this show. And they worked on a set um, that was uh, actually a set for a different production uh, that was going on at the Dorfman Theater the, at the time. This was uh, My Country, A Work in Progress. Um, so uh, they, they were simply ta taking this as, as a found object um, and working from the given uh, set. Those are the basic, uh, it's a basic info uh, file on, on the show itself. I'm not going to actually go too much into improvisation, but I think it's important to note that improvisation as a practice has a number of different lineages. Um, we can think about it in relation to Commedia dell'arte, uh, Stanislavskian practice. We can think about it in relation to developmental psychology and sociology, the significance of play and the way in which some of these thinkers and practitioners have um, for, developed the idea of uh, improvisation as a practice that's relevant in these fields. So in the UK, in particular, people will be familiar with Peter Slade, Brian Way, Dorothy Heathcote as the pioneers um, who have sort of deployed improvisation in these um, youth theatre contexts. Um, however, two important uh, names in, in the 20th century uh, especially for improvisation in theater, uh, Viola Spolin, the um, American uh, theater practitioner and uh, improvisation uh, advocate, 
Uh, she, has also, she has also written a book in 1963, um, and uh, her son, Paul Seals, is the founder of the Second City, which is Chicago's most famous uh, improvisation troupe. Chicago, of course, as, as, a, as a place, uh, is renowned for its improvisation scene, and this is probably mostly thanks to the, the work of Viola Spolin herself. Keith Johnston, on the other hand, is um, an interesting name uh, as someone who uh, I, I kind of comes in and out of fashion. I remember when I was doing my first degree, we were reading the book, and then um, for, for some decades, probably, my students, I didn't, I didn't necessarily use it in my teaching, but um, it kind of came back on my radar as a result of uh, this particular project. And so I think uh, uh, it's important maybe to... I'm just going to skip some of this. Uh, I, I was noting the way in which uh, Bradwin Williams also were noting, um, you know, they were, they were noting the significance of improvisation in the, in the uh, works of these other directors. But mostly improvisation was here deployed in a Stanislavskian sense uh, by Mnuchkin, Brook, uh, etc. Uh, and possibly important here for us also, especially in relation to that Myrmachides model, was um, the idea that we can think, you know, in the history of, of the way in which we think about improvisation and devising is a bit complex because some writers think about the two as coming out of the same root and some writers oppose the two ideas to each other. Um, and here are some references that uh, if people are interested, I can give you later on. But interestingly, when Mary McKeedis writes about forced entertainment, she notes that um, they have ditched the, the term improvisation in favor of the less theatrical trial, which kind of indicates um, how the, the, the notion of improvisation um, has uh, developed and what associations it has had throughout the latter part of the 20th century. So somehow improvisation doesn't get uh, canonized. You know that, that's the point I'm trying to make. That even though, um, even though Bradwin Williams note that uh, some of these directors use improvisation as a rehearsal technique, uh, Keith Johnston, who is a big pioneer of improvisation, isn't deemed as important enough to enter any of those um, uh, history books uh, at the time. Uh, even though his company, the Theatre Machine, was quite an important one and had a, uh, an international uh, visibility. So, Keith Johnson, just to note very quickly um, his um, sort of background, is a teacher, he trained as a teacher, he somehow um, stumbled into the, wor the world of theatre, um, he started working in the literary department of George Devine's Royal Court in the very early days. And as part of his time there, he developed a pedagogical practice. He was actually running um, a kind of school within the Royal Court, as well as um, being very active in the Devine and Gaskill's writers group that was uh, formed in the early days of the Royal Court. Um, so in his work with the writers' group, Keith Johnston, interestingly, instilled this policy of no discussion, that the writers came together with their ideas, but they were not to read uh, text, they were to actually act it out um, as a means of exploring ideas. 
There is a principle of a contrariness that Johnston uh, talks about in his work. This is, I would say, some kind of uh, dialecticism that he calls contrariness, just as a more informal, more uh, friendly term. Um, there is an example of this where he, at the, in the, on the very first page of his book, Impro, um, he talks about how he saw the Moscow Arts Theatre um, doing uh, one, of, uh, one of Chekhov's plays in London, and he was very struck by how strong all the motivations of all the actors on stage were. And he was interested in what would happen if, they, if the actors played the weakest possible motivation. So he developed exercises around status, which is the first section in the book uh, where uh, the actors are to play the, the, the smallest possible difference in status, status and see where that leads. And then he found as a result that actually this was probably um, more realistic acting than the one espoused by the Moscow Arts Theatre. Um, so there is this notion that the, the opposite of what is um, you know, the dominant way of thinking could also be true. What happens if we try the opposite? Um, he, so an important thing to note here is that until 1968, improvisation was uh, banned. Uh, because effectively, it wasn't banned explicitly, but effectively it was because everything had to be run through the sensor and the mechanism of running things through the sensor was through presenting the script. So in a way, no improvised shows uh, were seen until 1968, except for a show by Keith Johnston called Clowning, which was a children's uh, improvised show and which was approved by the Lord Chamberlain because it was described as a lecture with an introduction, audience participation, and status exercises for clowns. So that's quite an interesting moment of kind of subversion. And the theater machine, Impro Troupe, which um, grew out of um, Johnson's work at the Royal Court, uh, pioneered its own brand of spontaneous cre creation in front of an audience. Uh, with Johnson himself often side-coaching. Uh, obviously, the work of the group took off after 1968 and acquired an international status. Um, when he left uh, the royal court um, uh, in the 1970s, uh, Keith Johnson worked at RADA. He was teaching there for a while and then eventually uh, emigrated to Canada, where he still lives, and where he assumed sort of an academic career. Um, and uh, his biographer, Theresa Robbins-Dudek, um, has analyzed, interestingly, his curriculum and found that it um, manifested an interest in status, spontaneity, silencing, silencing the verbal mind, um, and then, of course, Stanislavski, Vachtangov, as well as Taoism and Zen. So uh, Improbable's rehearsal methodology is very influenced by Johnson. It's not the only influence, but it is one of the key ones. Um, they believe in ensemble, additionally, as being very important. In an, an interview I conducted with the directors, Lee Simpson told me that when one works on the company, the piece takes care of itself. So in a way, the priority is given to developing the ensemble rather than developing the show. They also uh, deploy, as I noted already, Harrison Owens' open space technology, although, of course, this is not um, applied in the same way in uh, the rehearsal room because, you know, Owens' open space technology says 
you know, you can come whenever you like, you can leave whenever you like. That doesn't happen in, in their rehearsals. But what they do take from the practice is um, rituals such as uh, the check-in and check-out circle. So at the beginning of each day, the, the actors, everyone present in the room, including myself when I was present as an observer, would sit in a circle and just share as much as they wanted uh, of how they felt at that moment in time. This would happen at the beginning, at the end of each day. This was a, a way of developing the ensemble. Um, they believe in theatrical experiment, research, and failure. These were the words they, they often used in rehearsal. They could be traced back to Johnson. And also they deployed um, Arnold, Mindel, uh, Arnold Mindel's uh, process work. Arnold Mindel is uh, an American Jungian practitioner. Particularly an aspect of this uh, practice, which is to do with acknowledging roles in the room. So, um, so for example, they would uh, try and articulate all the possible roles that could be present in the room of actors. They would, they would, um, they would try and channel possible anxieties and feelings that are present in the room by naming them as a particular role. So. I think probably the most uh, illustrative example of this is that they also speak about uh, ghost roles, and these are the roles of people who are not in the room. So, for example, the audience or the critics. Uh, they acknowledge all the possible roles that could exist in the room, and this becomes a framework through which they, um, uh, they, they develop the ensemble. They actually um, think about the processes of what is going in the room. And specifically, when talking about directors and their directorial model, they, um, this allows them to use the notion of the bossy director as a potential role that gets invoked at a particular moment in time in the room. So rather than them actually always being this authoritarian director in the room who, are, who is running the, the proceedings, they just invoke that particular role as and when they need it. Also important are Michael Chekhov's atmospheres, the idea of atmospheres, and Michael Chekhov's um, uh, sort of actor training technique. And um, there is a certain attention to the workings of the subconscious of the group as a source of creativity. So for example, in that uh, check-in circle, they, they invited people to share their dreams if they wanted to. And sometimes those dreams became um, incorporated into the rehearsal um, as, a, as, a, as a game or, or as a source of a game or as a source of some sort of um, uh, an intervention. So, for example, an actor on one occasion shared that uh, they had a dream where they, it was an anxiety dream where they, um, were one, they found themselves on stage and were wondering how long they could be on stage without speaking. And this became a game that was tried out um, in the process of rehearsal. This is what the uh, check-in circle looks like. It's taken from this particular rehearsal uh, process. And uh, the company uses uh, Johnston's improv vocabulary. I'm not going to bore you too much with this, but it's basically about saying yes, being awake, um, interrupting routines. These are some of the terms that we might have come across in other, in other uh, contexts too. Um, you know, it, it, basic sort of dramaturgical uh, techniques, I would say. 
but what's, what's interesting to note is the way in which, because of the particular training backgrounds of these actors and their, their particular professional experience, which was rooted in the sort of uh, you know, conventional uh, realist theater, one would say, or Aristotelian, Aristotelian understanding of conflict, the actors were often instinctively trying to create conflict by saying no. And uh, the, the uh, instruction here was that it was important to say yes in the spirit of uh, Johnson's improvisation technique um, as a means of getting into trouble and that that was something that the audience enjoyed seeing. So in a way, they were, you know, no was not allowed <laughs> in any of the improvisations. I guess it's important to say that um, Keith Johnson's idea of improvisation was not in uh, the lineage of Commedia dell'arte where you had pre-existing type, character types, or you had pre-existing storylines that the actors played around. The idea was that um, the, the material emerged from the here and now. And this is where I think that whole genealogy of live art uh, and, and performance art is important because it emphasizes the notion of the here and now and the presence of the actor rather than um, rather than some sort of hypothetical situation or hypothetical identity that they're stepping into. They struggled with the idea that if they play the character, they needed to know, um, they needed to have background knowledge of that uh, character. So they were struggling with this Stanislavskian baggage. And in this way of working, that background knowledge is not important. What is important is simply being here and now in the situation. So in that respect, um, the characters were often uh, commenting on this, sorry, the actors were often commenting on this, on this notion that they were not playing a character and they were not, be, they were not necessarily being themselves either. They were being present and they were responding to the impetus coming from their colleague on stage. And in a way, um, the role that they played um, was one that could sometimes be projected by another person, rather than one that they were bringing with them into a situation. I'm going to kind of whiz through, because I'm aware of the fact that um, I'm possibly running out of time. So, um, uh, Improbables heterarchical direction, as I'm calling it, they are not calling it this, but I'm kind of giving it this um, label, could be characterized by an absence of forward planning. So the directors themselves don't come into a rehearsal room with preconceived ideas of what they want to do on a particular day. They don't have an agenda, they don't have a rehearsal plan. They simply arrive and they decide on the day uh, what uh, needs working on. And as a result of this, there are, there are um, no disagreements that are visible. Uh, between the directors. This was one of the things I was really interested in when I went into those rehearsals to observe. I wanted to see how the two directors, uh, you know, work together, how they actually make um, the show happen. And um, very often one would expect that to be, you know, a certain struggle between the authorities of the directors. But actually, in this case, this was not, this was simply not an issue because um, they certainly had different tastes and different views and they complemented each other simply in terms of what kind of personalities they were, but there wasn't a power struggle between them because uh, there was no agenda that either of the director, uh, directors brought into the room. In this way, there was a certain 
provision of what we might consider as systemic rather than individual leadership. So this systemic leadership works in the way that everybody present um, subscribes to the same ideas of um, working together rather than um, there needing to be a figure that enforces uh, those, uh, those ways of working. And um, it, the work is about the facilitation of um, the actors' uh, creativities. And so what we watch on stage is the actors', actors creative process um, rather than the work that they had already pre-prepared. So they um, actually, the actors actually performed the work that was, that was being made from scratch every night um, in front of our eyes on the stage. What they were using rehearsals for was just for practice. But act, the actual show was completely different every night. And there was a sense of uh, co-creating uh, between all of the members of the creative team. So the assistant director, the musician, the lighting designer, as I noted already, uh, participated in creating the show. And there was also an ethos of following rather than directing the flow. Um, so there, I'm, I'm not being uh, entirely uncritical of this. The, you know, I'm not saying that this is an ideal way of working because there were problems in this uh, process as well. There were problems in terms of um, the fact that, for example, one of the, the, the actors left just uh, uh, a couple of days before the show opening because they felt that they couldn't um, cope with the level of anxiety that they faced at that moment in time. Um, there was a sense that uh, the actors maybe weren't learning these skills as fast as they were expected to or that the, they themselves expected to. Um, one thing that I haven't mentioned, which is possibly important here, is that the key reason why this show was being made with this particular group of actors was because, and this, they deliberately didn't want to foreground this for ethical, ethical reasons, was the idea that um, uh, actors of this, of this generation don't get to perform on stage anymore because they can't remember lines. So um, by teaching them improvisation skills and giving them this opportunity, the idea was that they would get to you know, perform without having to learn the lines. So um, th their, their uh, performance uh, sort of consisted of something else. It uh, showcased a, a different kind of skill to the one that they were used to showcasing. Um, and um, there were also decisions, difficult decisions that had to be made around whether or not the directors had, uh, were to be present on stage with the actors. Um, initially, they did not intend to, but the actors demanded that the directors were present with them on stage uh, because all of the actors were basically sitting in a semicircle uh, throughout the performance. And the performance, which lasted about an hour, consisted of five, often five scenes that were being created in response to the stimulus given by uh, the directors. And sometimes the directors were coaching in that Keith Johnston um, style. Very often, Faye McDermott actually made uh, interventions that gave coherence to the evening as a whole. So if a theme cropped up at the beginning, it would be reincorporated towards the end in the way in which uh, McDermott shaped uh, the material that was emerging. Um, so this brought up questions around um, author authorship and authority that 
uh, is potentially seemingly um, uh, renounced, but then re-emerges in a different way. And of course, we can uh, engage with this and discuss this in more detail. But I think it is important to note that the intention here is often different to the one that um, exists in other working processes. And what's also important is this notion of a, this political gesture of injecting the alternative, um, the improvisation um, practice into the mainstream, the national theater, on this occasion in particular. This does lend itself uh, within the paradigm of leadership studies um, and various authors writing about the move away, the shift away from ego-centeredness to eco-centeredness and the notion of self-organization. Um, one writer, Margaret Wheatley, talks about um, the way in which uh, 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 um, self-organization is about uh, the relationships being building blocks of life rather than the individuals. And I guess this is apparent in this way of working uh, and also in this idea of hierarchy, which is about relationships, the network between spheres. Um, and so the, the ecological perspective is certainly relevant here. But just to conclude, um, I was asked to then summarize what this, uh, what, how, what this particular way of working uh, might be, how it might be um, defined. And these are some of my uh, conclusions. I, as I said at the beginning, I don't intend them as a manifesto. It's simply just a series of uh, observations. That the heterarchical director might be seen as a director that renounces sole authority in favor of nurturing multiple authorities within the rehearsal room. The heterarchical director is interested in systemic rather than individual leadership. As such, she cultivates self-sustaining processes of communication and creation in the rehearsal room and is interested to discover outcomes of these processes rather than predict or influence them. The heterarchical director does not feel artistically and authorially diminished by pedagogy, coaching, facilitation, enabling. The heterarchical director is not afraid of failure and the heterogeneous director functions as only one sphere of a network of multiple spheres of influence within the artwork that they are creating. <laughs>